Hallelujah. Mark chapter 11, last uh, few verses of Mark chapter 11. In one way or another, each of us here have been confronted by authority. Now, if I were to ask you to, to say the first word or get the first picture in your head when I say authority, think about what comes to your mind. Now, this week I asked some people that, and here's what some people said and what they thought of the police. Steve liked that answer. <laughs> Government. Parents. Teachers. Coaches. Some said pastors and elders and deacons, leadership of the church. Some shrugged their shoulders as if to say, I don't like authority. Some said their boss. And some husbands said their wives. <clears throat> Thanks, Jim. What about you? What comes to mind when you think authority? What picture, what person, what situation, what circumstance comes to mind when you think of authority. Webster's definition of authority is the power to determine, decide, or otherwise settle issues or disputes, the right to control, command, or determine. Who is that in your life? This morning we're going to talk about authority. And get a glimpse of what Jesus says about authority, particularly his authority. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for <clears throat> the words we were able to sing and rehearse, the truth that it was present in the lyrics. We thank you for the time where we've got to enjoy friends and get hugs and encouragement, extend smiles and handshakes to be together as believers with one purpose, to experience, to glorify, and hear from you. And so God, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you find our hearts and minds, our souls are in a position to receive and give to respond to your Spirit's leading. So God, we pray that you give us information that is very clear to our hearts and minds and that you remind us that you have empowered us by that same Spirit to do what you call us to do so that we can become the likeness of Christ. Would you take a minute and pray for the person beside you or behind you that they would hear, receive, and respond to God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33 say this. They came again to Jerusalem. This is Jesus and the disciples. And as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? 
Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? Then they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Very interesting passage and interaction with these chief priests and scribes and elders. And the first thing we see is this questioning of Jesus' authority. Now, verse 27 starts out by saying, Now, they again come into Jerusalem. And I want to talk about that just for a second. Why again? Think about the times Jesus has come into Jerusalem already. The triumphal entry. Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm branches. Then he comes in and cleanses out the temple, overturning tables, getting rid of the money changers. And then 27 says they return again to Jerusalem. In fact, one commentator says that he returns to the scene of the crime, if you will. They come back to the temple, but as we see from this passage, it's not just to a building that they return, they return to people. They're coming back to their accusers. The ones that were starting to plot against Jesus. Now think about this. This is a pretty bold statement by Jesus and his disciples. To walk right back into the temple. Now remember, Jesus had created a really huge stir. A huge scene, unlike anything they had ever experienced before. And he walked away from that and the disciples without harm or being taken. And now he comes back into the temple again. And he was walking around in the temple area. Now there's something about the temple that I want to get you a picture, get you a picture of. There's two distinct places in the, in the temple that Jesus is probably walking around. Now in the temple there's two distinct places, one on the east side and one on the south side. And the east side was called Solomon's Porch. And it was this grand place where the court of Gentiles, where the Gentiles could walk through. Huge columns, 35 feet tall. It provided shade. But then on the south end was a place called the Royal Cluster, which was a, a place that had 162 columns covered 30 feet high from rain and shade and the sun was all there. And people would walk in and out and through. And it was during these places that rabbis would walk through the temple and they would teach. Almost every temple, almost every synagogue replicating the temple had these columns in these areas, not to this magnitude. And so people will be walking around listening to Jesus teach. There will be a crowd there. And while Jesus is teaching, verse 27 says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to question him. Now, just a definition, a simple definition of the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes, and the elders comprised, made up, the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were this Jewish executive, legislative, and judicial council 
that came to see Jesus. Now, not all the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made up of 70 people. But probably a delegation of the Sanhedrin came to question Jesus. Now, it's important to know that in some ways, the Sanhedrin were doing what they were supposed to do. These guys were coming to Jesus and questioning them about what had happened the last time they were there. They were doing their job. They probably got word, hey, Jesus and his boys are here again. And they came out because of the last time to question him. To say, hang on, please don't do that again. Because it was their responsibility. And we can assume that what was happening before was not happening now because he's not referencing it. Now, in their mind, from a protective point of view, they were asking reasonable questions of Jesus. Think about it from their sandals. For a private, individual person like Jesus with a few disciples who came in and disrupt and cleared out the court of Gentiles, turning over tables, the Sanhedrin thought, what's going on? We've been appointed to protect the temple. Both spiritually and, of course, now physically. In fact... In Deuteronomy chapter 13, it was appointed by God for the high priest, I mean for the chief priest and for the religious rulers to do what the Sanhedrin was called to do. But since these religious rulers, these Sanhedrin delegates, had never commissioned or never approved or never ordained Jesus, they questioned his authority. Because, if you remember back in Mark chapter 1, they had already experienced Jesus and his teaching of authority. Listen to Mark chapter 1, 22. They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And so this authority question is not new. What they're trying to discern is where the authority is coming from. And so they ask, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do the things that you're doing? Now he says these things. We can always look back prior to that and say what things he's talking about. Well, Remember the day before, Jesus had turned over temples, he'd rebuked the Pharisees, he was teaching, he put a stop to perverted practices that were going, all that. Plus, what about the miracles? What about the driving out of demons? What about this public entry into Jerusalem? How do you have this compassion for people? How can you feed that many people? What authority... Are you doing these things? Now, the purpose of the Sanhedrin's question was to force Jesus to admit that he had no authority to teach and act the way he did. And the Sanhedrin claimed that they were the authority. They were the ones that were allowed to do what Jesus was doing, not Jesus. Because the Sanhedrin took pride in their appointment. They took pride in their authority. 
to rid and purge evil from and for the people. Now, I want to take a look at what the Greek definition of authority is. Authority is an important theme through Mark. We see it about four or five, six times. It's particularly four times in this passage alone. The New Testament word for authority is this word exosia, which means this, that someone has the meaningful, rightful, actual, and unimpeded power to act or to possess, control, or dispose of something or somebody. I'm going to read it again. The Greek definition of authority, they have the meaningful right, actual and unimpeded power to act or to possess, control, use, or dispose of something or somebody. In other words, this Greek word for authority means lawful or appropriate. In fact, this New Testament word for authority also is connected theologically. Which means that there is power granted within this word by God. So they're asking this authority question, how is it connected to God? One commentator said this, the unchanging biblical conviction is that the only rightful power within creation is, ultimately, the Creator's. And he goes on to say, because all authority is ultimately God's, submission to authority in the, all realms of life is a religious duty and part of God's service. So now, in light of this New Testament word, this New Testament context about authority and God, think about what the Sanhedrin are asking. Who do you think you are? Why are you doing things that is only allowed and permitted by God? What's your deal, dude? That's in the side margin part. <laughs> and in the, in the passage, when you, when you look at it, don't you want to speak for Jesus in just a little bit and say, I have tried to tell you over and over again, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And so the real question I want Jesus to say back to the Sanhedrin is, who do you think you are? You don't think you have authority, a God place authority over me, do you? But isn't that the real question when it comes to authority between us and God? Who do we think we are in relation to the real authority of God who's right in front of us? How do you answer that question? In front of Jesus, really think about it. How do you answer? If Jesus says, who do you think you are? Now think of this scene. Think about the questioning from their perspective. Christ is in whose temple? His temple. Jesus is in his temple. His house. R.C. Sproul said this, The very word authority has within it the word author. 
An author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. Insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of his creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands or falls. It's his house. Jesus is questioned about his authority in his house. It would be like this. If somebody walked into your house and said, by what authority did you paint the color of your bedroom that? <laughs> Think about it. You're like, Who are you to walk into my house tell me how to paint my bedroom? Now put this in Jesus' terms. Jesus is in his house, and they are questioning his authority in his house. And they asked Jesus, where did this authority come from? Ultimately, ultimately, they want him to, to either do it their way or leave. And their question revealed something about their heart and what their understanding of Jesus really was. Instead of seeking to understand who Jesus was and what he had done in the temple, they wanted to know about his authority. Because here's what you don't see them asking or saying. They didn't seek clarification of what that he had done, what they had done wrong. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They didn't tell of how they had changed since the day before. They didn't agree to follow up with anything Jesus had done or said. Nothing had cracked their sense of entitlement of authority. On being the authority in God's house. There was no acceptance of responsibility only questions to defend their rights. Now, let me just say this. It's a hard thing to swallow sometimes when I have to feel like I can identify with the Sanhedrin. But could that be my motive sometimes? The motive of protecting and defending my right or status rather than seeking forgiveness and repentance and submitting to authority. The Sanhedrin attempted to embarrass Jesus and to run him away and defeat him. And if they could do that in front of the people, then they could tell the people, don't listen to him. He's not approved by us. They were not resolved to receive his doctrine or his teaching. They were resolved to find some flaw some flaw in him so that they could remain in power. They hoped to put Jesus in a catch-22. Because if he said he was acting under his own authority, they may arrest him as a tyrant. And if he said that he was acting under the authority of God, they would arrest him for being blasphemous. And if they said that, Jesus said that I did these because of God then they would simply say, no one, no one can say that God told them to do what you did in the temple. And so Jesus saw quite clearly the dilemma in which they sought to involve him, and so he turns the table back on them. Heaven or from men. Verse 29 and 30, And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Jesus responds to this Sanhedrin 
chief priests, elders, and scribes with a great counter question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Was it of God or was it man-made? It's a great question. I love it. And the use of counter questions among the, the rabbinic uh, uh, teachers was common. And you know, when you ask a question, it makes a person think about a response. Formulate what they really believe. Now, this one is different in Jesus' case because Jesus made his answer dependent on their answer. And Jesus' use of the counter-question was not an evasion of the question. It was a means of establishing the source of his own authority and all the authority in the spiritual realm. Now, the most recent monument of truth and the validity of the prophetic order in Israel was John. There were other prophets Jesus could have pulled out. He could have said uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. But they were from a long time ago. John was current. John was recent, a contemporary. He was fresh in their minds and fresh in the minds of people. And people would have remembered John's execution from Herod of Antipas. In some ways, it was still a sensitive subject. The people in the crowd would have felt that sensitivity and the weight of this question. And the Sanhedrin couldn't publicly go against the decisions of Herod. They knew the people really validated John. So it was a sensitive subject, which, which as a side angle for me, lets me know that Jesus does not shy away from we think, what we think are sensitive areas. He wants us to face them and clarify the choices and motives behind every area of our life. Now, the significance of John's message is this. The expression of John's baptism embraces the references of John's baptism being one of repentance and a prerequisite for forgiveness and his pro proclamation of the coming one. John 1, 6 through 8, John says this about Jesus. There came a man sent from God whose name was John... He came as a witness to testify about the light, capital L, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So see Jesus' thinking about this question. Was John real and right? Was he from God? The question is, was John's ministry man-made or was it divinely authorized? If John's message had God's approval and authorization, then Jesus and his message also had to have divine authorization as well. Because remember, John baptized Jesus. And just to give you this scene, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mark chapter 1, verses 10. And 11, immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening up and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heavens and said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And Jesus is asking, Did that really happen? Is this true of John and me? They had come to question John before already. John 1.19 says, This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, No. Then they said, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? John says this, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make straight for the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Do you see the question that Jesus is asking the Sanhedrin? Jesus knew there had to be a great and defining conclusion to the question. To accept John was to accept Jesus, and to reject John was to reject Jesus. The two were handcuffed together. It's an awesome question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Now let me just ask this. How do you determine is something from God or something from men? What would you have done? What would you have said if you were in the Sanhedrin's shoes? Sandals. How do we determine the difference between things of man and things of God? What's that process? What's the filter we use? Is one of the filters, what we see in the Sanhedrin, whether or not it threatens my own authority? So let me stop and just ask for a second. Based on the de definition we've looked at from Webster, but more importantly from the Greek and the New Testament, what or who would you say is your authority? Who or what settles your issues, determines right and wrong? Who or what has the right to control, command, or determine? Based on the definition, who are we giving authority to? Does Google have authority in your life? How about social media? <laughs> Facebook said it, that settles it. How about, how about this? Your own research. Government? The news or TV? How about that latest podcast you listen to? Are the authorities in our lives of God or of man? Of God or of us? Now, certainly there are authorities in our life that are acceptable and even ordained by God. But how do we know underneath all that if we're living under the authority of God or of man or even of ourselves? One of the best ways we can know is through God's Word. We know this because the Bible is our authority as well. Now, some of you may have heard this phrase before, sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase that scripture alone, it was a rallying cry that came out of the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther had a rallying cry, actually had 95 rallying cries, and said that some of the things that the Catholic Church was doing was not biblical. It wasn't lining up with Scripture. So he comes and says, Sola Scriptura. It was a proclamation to say that the Bible alone is the only rule, only authority of faith and practice. Now that does not mean that other authorities in our life are not valid and useful. They are. 
They are just not the final or ultimate authority in our lives. One pastor said it well. It means in the end, all our histories, all our traditions, all of our creeds and confessions, and all other man-made authorities must be tested against the supreme authority of the Bible. And if the Bible is our sole authority or faith and practice, then we ought to live our lives in light of that reality. John Stott had a great quote for our culture today. He says this, The modern world detests authority, but worships relevance. But our Christian conviction is that the Bible has both authority and relevance, and that the secret of both is Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God was standing in front of the Sanhedrin. And they were the teachers of the law. And all of the law pointed to the person in front of them. And they asked, by what authority? It begs the question, do you know God's word? Is it your infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you read God's word? Study God's word. Do you read and study and meditate on God's word so that you can read and study and meditate on the person of Jesus? Now, I love Jesus' two words at the end of verse 30 that he says to the Sanhedrin with a little bit of oomph behind it. He says, answer me. One author said it this way, he impaled them on the horns of a dilemma. Jesus confounded the religious leaders and clarified his authority with one question, yet strongly, strongly invited them to respond. And I want to look at their response in verses 31 and 33. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, we will say, then he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? Then they were afraid of the people, for everyone considers John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority do I do these things. Have you ever thought about in your own life what makes authority so difficult? How many of you have ever tried to pet a cat backwards? Sometimes that's what authority feels like to us. Like it, it, just, it just goes against our grain. Somebody telling me what to do? How to live? How to think? Why is authority so difficult? Because authority is linked to submission and obedience. Or it's linked to disobedience and rebellion. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't eat this tree. Think about this kid who says, parent says, don't go there, don't do this, and they go there and do that. What makes it difficult for us with this idea of authority? Well, I'm convinced of this. We have difficulties with authority when we think we know better than the authority. Bottom line. We have difficulty with authority when we think we know better than the authority. 
How many of you remember your first boss? One of my first boss at the age of 13, maybe even 12, 13, 14, it was a guy by the name of Bobby Livingston. He was my boss. And I love that guy. Still keep in touch with him today. I worked for him at a boating water park, a batting cage, some landscaping, did carpet cleaning with him. Wherever he wanted me to work, I worked. And I loved working for him. It didn't feel like work. When Bobby asked me to do something, I not only did it, but because it was Bobby asking, I wanted to do it really, really well. I put everything into it. I was careful to do it, not just what he asked, but to do it in such a way that, that he would see the depth of my commitment, the desire for him to be pleased. And so it is with our benevolent authority Jesus. When we believe and love and trust and submit to the authority of God, the things He asks us to do will not feel like work, and we will want to because of His benevolence, because of His love, because of His grace, respond to His authority with, I'm going to do this with the best of my ability given so that He can be pleased. The Sanhedrin or religious leaders didn't follow or want to obey Jesus because they weren't convinced Jesus knew as much as they did. And it says in verse 31, they start out on the wrong foot. It says they began to reason among themselves. How many of you talk to yourself? I've said it before, but I think it's okay you talk to yourself as long as you don't say, huh? <laughs> Remember what these guys were? What were they? Bible scholars. And where did they go first? They reasoned within themselves. They wanted to come up with an answer inside themselves, a, a solution inside themselves that would both satisfy Jesus and still get to do what they wanted to do and be who they wanted to be. Do we ever do that? When confronted with a questionable situation, questionable relationship, questionable motive, do we begin to reason among ourselves and others to present a rational defense to God in order to keep our status and position? One author said this, No religion which appeals to mere human opinion in making its determination can have real authority or power. And Jesus says, Answer me. In verse 33 we do not know. Now, ironically, as a side note, for them not to know could have disqualified them from being in the Sanhedrin. The whole story is a vivid example of what happens to those who will not face the truth. Have you ever thought, what if these guys said, Jesus, I get it. You're right. I submit. I see where your authority comes from. You're God. This is your house. What do you want me to do? In regards to authority, it's been said, value placed equals surrender given. Value placed equals surrender given. And I want to close with 
Three questions with that in mind. How are you responding to the authority of Christ? Are you reasoning with God to keep your status and position kind of unhindered? In an elders meeting this week, one of your elders said, we say to God sometimes, God, use me, but not like that. Are we willing to have total submission to the one who has total authority? Remember what Jesus said of himself. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. Second question, when you look at your life, what or whom are you giving the most authority to? A question I'd like for you to pay attention to this week is, why is, why is authority so difficult for me? With this person or that area? What makes obedience different? What does the Bible say? Does sola scriptura describe your life? Elizabeth Elliot put these two together and said this, until the will and the affections are brought under the authority of Christ, we have not begun to understand, let alone accept his lordship. And the last question is this, are we hindering our impact for the kingdom of God by our unwillingness to submit to the authority of Jesus? If you think about this, on the other side of obedience are people and situations that God wants to use in his kingdom. And our disobedience can hinder the growth of the kingdom of God. So what is God calling you to do in response to his word this morning? And continue with the service. Seth and the team's going to come. We're going to partake, partake in communion. First Peter 2.24 says this, And he himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. Aren't you so thankful? So thankful that Jesus submitted to the authority of his Father on our behalf because we were on the other side of his obedience. There's tables set up in front of each section. You can, as Seth and your team begins to play, you can come, partake of communion, take the elements back to your seat, examine yourself, as, as Scripture tells us to do, and then we'll partake together. Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for this passage. Thank you for the challenge of it. Thank you for the truth of it. God, help us understand it and apply it. Thank you so much for what we're about to celebrate in communion your obedience to your Father on our behalf, the bread and the cup, forgiveness and healing. Thank you, Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.